Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the if we get the social media we deserve then we must all be terrible people to deserve the social media we got episode. I'm Cardiff Garcia. And I'm Shannon Bond. On the show today, we welcome back Emily Parker, two-time guest and author of the book Now I Know Who My Comrades Are, which is the story of online dissidents in China, Cuba, and Russia. But she's back today because she has a new article about her involvement with Parlio, which was a high-profile attempt to establish a new social media platform that would engage only in smart, substantive, civil discussions. Things didn't work out quite as expected, and along the way, Emily learned a few lessons about the nature of social media. She's going to share those with us. And then afterwards, Shannon and I are going to do a speed round with our thoughts about the five social media platforms that we use, where those platforms are as companies, and also how they've been changing lately to adapt to the user experience. Actually, Shannon, we, we haven't defined that segment very well, have we? It's kind of just an excuse to pop off a bit. Yeah, I've got some stuff to say about the internet. And, and damn everything. it, you are going to share them. <laughs> I'm going to share them. <laughs> Real quick before uh, we turn to my uh, conversation with Emily, I've been noticing in the last few months, just anecdotally, that people are making serious efforts. People just in my circle are making serious efforts to scale back their social media presence and also uh, they're trying to compartmentalize a bit their time spent on social media. And one of those anecdotal data points is you. That's right. I mean, I had a good excuse in part because I've been on maternity leave for almost seven months. But I actually found myself spending a lot of time on social media at parts of, during parts of that leave, but definitely sort of in the fall and prepping to come back to work. I've been thinking a lot about the ways in which it is a good, but mostly a maybe not so good force. Specifically, you deleted uh, Twitter from your phone, right? Yeah, I, did, I deleted both of the Twitter and Facebook apps from my phone, and I have yet to put them back on, and I'm not missing them. How does it make you feel? It's freeing. Honestly, it's freeing. You initially have that feeling that you're missing something, but then you realize you're not missing anything because if it's happening and you're seeing it, great. And if it's not happening, it's like not going to matter. If you're not seeing it, it's probably not going to matter. Or if it's important enough that it matters, you're going to hear about it in other ways that are maybe more thoughtful and more considered and less hot takey. I had that initial, maybe the, the first week that I did it, I had that initial habit of I would pick up my phone to go to Twitter and I didn't have anything to go to. So first of all, I started reading more straight news. I was actually reading the New York Times app a lot on my phone, the FT app, the Washington Post app, and that was actually kind of nice. And this was post-election, so I was feeling very virtuous about supporting journalism. But also it made me spend less time on my phone, which as as we know, I think but you and I both sort of struggle with the amount of time uh, we devote to these screens in our lives. So yeah, it's totally been an interesting agree. experiment. But it's not, It's it, I don't know how long it's going to be sustainable now that I'm back at work and back at the thick of things. Totally agree. Uh, I did the same thing. I deleted both Twitter and Facebook from my phone. For me, the rationale was a strange kind of heightened sensitivity to something that I knew all along, which was that on Twitter in particular, it is so easy. 
if you're tweeting uh, to misconvey your tone. Mm-hmm. And if you're being tweeted at, it's so easy to misconstrue somebody so else's get, tone. Yeah, get sucked into these. And you get you do get sucked into these exchanges mm-hmm. that often descend into something really quite maddening with somebody that you may even know in person, maybe you've even spent time with, somebody who is in real life really quite lively and engaging and lovely. Uh, and on Twitter, you get into these backs and forths where there's all kinds of misunderstandings or they seem to be like misunderstandings. And what often kind of straddles the line between firmness and vigorous argument on the one side and just outright rudeness on the other. And it gets to be so hard to tell uh, which side of that line you're on. And I just decided in the end that this wasn't worth it anymore. I'm trying to compartmentalize my time on social media and try to restrict it actually to just time at work. To to your point about the kinds of exchanges we, we too often get drawn into, I mean, I think, you know, we all, we all want to think that these forms of communication allow us to have, like, really interesting debates and be exposed to other people's points of views and, you know, like, spar a little bit. But I think it's really often these things that are, like, complex and, you know, often what would be well thought out uh, lines of argument get collapsed into sort of these really, like, one-dimensional back and forth. And I, I actually, I tend to engage in those less myself anyway. But what, what happens to me is I get sucked into them, like to watching them, right? So it's like the spectator sport. So you open up your timeline and it's like, well, there's this argument going on. And then I find myself going back and whatever. And then the next thing I've known, I'm like wasting 20 minutes, like reading some Twitter thread that like, did it add anything to my life? Did it add anything to the way I thought about the world? More often than not, I have to say no. No, it is so not nutritious. Uh, okay, much more of that to come later. But for now, here is my interview with Emily Parker. Emily, uh, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me again. The story of Parlio, where you were chief strategy officer, I want to start here. It was founded in response to a flaw in Twitter, right, and how Twitter was engaged with uh, and how Twitter was run. Uh, Why don't you start by telling us uh, what problem uh, Parlio was meant to fix or at least what gap it was meant to fill? Sure. So it actually wasn't created as a response to Twitter specifically. It was more social media writ large. And so Parlio was started by an Egyptian activist who had been very involved in the Arab Spring. He had actually run the Facebook page that some say sparked the demonstrations that led to the Egyptian revolution. And What was his name? Wael Gonim. And after the euphoria of the revolution faded, Wael found that social media had actually become more divisive than anything else. And so, you know, he was a true believer in social media. He saw the power of social media to help topple a dictator. And then after the revolution found that social media was actually having a polarizing effect inside Egypt. And it had become the site of flame wars and trolling and abuse directed at him specifically and to others. And the Egyptian activists were divided by this tool that once united them. So I think that's what, for him, led him to try to create a different kind of social media experience. So Parlio was created to be a platform for civility and thoughtfulness. And the idea was we were going to try to foster more thoughtful, civil conversation, and also try to eliminate some of the echo chambers that were are so prominent on social media. The idea was, let's try to get people who have different ideas, who come from different walks of life, talking to each other in a civil way. That was the, that was the vision behind the company. There was a high-profile piece by Thomas Friedman, yes. um, columnist at the New York Times. And I think one of the points he made about Parlio was that 
social media has proven to be uh, very helpful for dissent, Mm -hmm. but it's not clear that it's all that helpful for actually building something, for constructing something, for building a place that would foster the kind of conversation that you're describing here. I think that's a widely held view. I mean, as you remember, there was so much media hype about the role of social media in fomenting revolution. You know, this idea that, oh, social media can take down dictators, social media can organize people all over the world. But later, yes, we saw that social media was not as effective in creating new forms of government, in strengthening democratic institutions. So I think that is an issue. And yeah, that was something that we were thinking about. It's like, okay, let's not use social media only as a way to get tens of thousands of people onto the street. Let's actually get people to talk about things, to have constructive dialogue. That was the idea, because I think you're right. Many believe that social media has been much less effective in in fostering that kind of dialogue. Yeah. um, So let's talk about how Parlio uh, tried to go about that. You want it to be a place where there's civil, engaging discussion. Twitter is a place where you sometimes have that. The problem is that it's hard to find it sometimes Mm -hmm. in the kind of haystack of abuse and the torrent of harassment and really obscene behavior. Um, Parlio is meant to essentially filter out all the bad stuff and only leave in the stuff that was really nutritious, right? Yeah. So, I mean, just to say here also, I love Twitter. I use Twitter all the time. So this isn't meant to be a criticism of Twitter specifically. I think Twitter, as you said, there are amazing conversations that happen on Twitter all the time. But Twitter is huge. It's it's It has people from all over the place. And, and I think there's been so much criticism recently about trolling that's happening on Twitter, anonymity, just general incivility that has kind of infected the the platform. And so Parlio, we were much smaller. So we didn't quite have the problem that Twitter has, which is you just have hordes of people and 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 you know how do you how do you keep them all in line? We were always a smaller platform, but one of the things we did was we had members sign a civility pledge at the onset, which is kind of an interesting tactic. The idea was there was just a pledge that said, you know, if I'm going to use this platform, I'm going to be civil. It was a very simple thing, but it kind of set out an expectation in the beginning of like what this experience was going to be. I wonder if that also sent a signal to somebody who would have been tempted to join the platform and then be abusive, that if they did, they would be banned pretty quickly, that they'd get caught, that this was such an important part of Parlio that even if they did essentially lie and sign the civility mm-hmm. pledge and then joined and tried to start harassing people, that they'd be busted so they wouldn't even bother. And so sure. I guess in that sense, it would have been kind of like a filtering mechanism Absolutely. right at the outset. Absolutely. That's true. And also, Parlio had a strict real name policy. We knew who everybody was. You know, they tended to be either invited or referred by other members. So, you know, they you knew their name, you knew where they worked, you knew where they were from. So already the culture was quite different. You didn't have somebody who would just hurl abuse and then hide behind a Twitter egg. So that wasn't an option on Parlio. Right. I should say that I myself signed up to Parlio uh, and was really enjoying it. And getting a lot out of it until the time when uh, it was sold to Quora and it became something different. But I guess uh, what I want to ask now is about the substance of your new article Mm -hmm. in uh, Politico, uh, where you say you learned some lessons about the nature of social media because of the way that journalists and authors and policymakers and other thinkers engaged with Parlio and more to the point because of the ways they often did not engage with Parlio. Sure. Sure. So I would just want to say quite clearly, I didn't really have a chance to say that in the article, that 
obviously Parlio was not a perfect product. The point of my article is not Parlio was so awesome, Twitter is terrible. That's not what I'm saying. I mean, Parlio, of course, had its own issues. And I actually don't even really think the article's about Parlio at all. It's more about what I learned about user behavior from working at Parlio, because you will really learn a lot about user psychology if you work on a social media platform. So just want to preface my comments with that. You know, I think it's really interesting. The main takeaway from my experience at Parlio is that what people say they want out of social media is different from what they actually want. So, you know, when we would tell people about Parlio, they love the idea. And I think actually now it seems more relevant than ever. Everybody's always complaining about, oh, I love Twitter, but it's there's so much incivility. People are screaming at each other. There's echo chambers. You know, Parlio's whole mission was to come up with an alternative to that. So we would tell people about that and we'd say, okay, here's a place where you can have thoughtful engagement and, you know, there won't be any trolling. And people would say, awesome. And they'd sign up. But then getting them to actually participate turned out to be rather challenging in many cases. And I think, you know, I lay out some of the reasons in my article. I think one of them was that thoughtful engagement takes time. You know, and and in, in, in the article, I use a food metaphor, which is that, you know, Parlio would say to people, here, come sit down and have a home-cooked meal. And you'd say, oh, that's cool. That sounds great. But, like, who has time for that? Like, I'm just running all over the place. You know, Twitter says, here, just take this one M&M. It won't hurt you. And you're like, okay, you know, but nobody eats just one M&M, right? <laughs> I mean, most – I don't. So, so – the end result is you have you're sitting at your desk eating M&Ms all day, actually spending way more time on Twitter than you would on Parlio, but you don't perceive it that way. So I think in this funny way, because Parlio set the bar high, it kind of intimidated people or made them think, oh, this is too time consuming. And then they went to a platform that they saw is taking less time. That was one challenge. But ended up spending more time. But ended up spending more time. And I think, you know, the civility issue is interesting, too, because, of course, There's a lot more that Twitter could do to curb abuse. No question. I mean, I'm not talking about blatant racial slurs and I'm not talking about, you know, flat out abusive behavior. I'm just talking about conversation that lacks civility, conversation that's full of insults or not really listening to the other person. Exactly. I'm talking about a more general level of incivility. And people say, I don't want that. I can't stand that. But often that's the kind of content that goes viral. And, you know, we see this with our president elect. I mean, he is the master of short antagonistic black and white statements that goes viral on social media much quicker than a polite argument among academics. So, you know, Parlo had this this problem where people said they wanted a kind of, you know, civil exchange, but civil exchanges are not always as interesting to read as arguments or fights rather on, on Twitter. Yeah, that is an interesting psychological lesson in and of itself because It sounds like on Parlio, the actual conversation had to be its own reward. Mm -hmm. And you might learn something uh, or you might have the satisfaction that people that you respect respect you back enough to engage you. But it's still going to be a fairly small number of people, at least a relatively small number of people. On Twitter, you always have the potential to get that widespread validation just from retweets or from even a meaningless pat on the back, like somebody saying, hey, this is interesting. But if enough people do it, you get this fix. It feels good. It's like uh, like eating a piece of candy or having a cigarette, something that's not nutritious at all, 
but in the moment it feels quite nice. And there's also something about, I guess, the connection mm -hmm. that you feel to all these other people, even if it's fleeting, even if it's quick. Sure. On Parlio, uh, the connection might be more meaningful, but it might also only be with a few other people. Sure. But that's the funny thing, too, because you hear people complaining that Twitter is too big and too chaotic. And again, the other thing that I should really say clearly is that we weren't really trying to compete with Twitter head on. I mean, that was just impossible. That was not our mission. We were creating a different experience entirely. So it's not like Parlio wasn't trying to replace Twitter. We were kind of complimenting Twitter, which I think is important, right? I mean, you can still have that Twitter experience. We were not trying. We That would have been ridiculous. You know, I mean, we were kind of a new small company. Um, and Twitter serves its purpose for sure. But it's funny because, you know, I talk about this in the article too. If you're, if you're an expert in something or, you know, you're an academic, you're a journalist and you write an article, you know, which would you prefer? Would you prefer having your article read, really read and commented upon by people in your field or people who are in similar fields and they're really reading it and they're challenging it and they're talking to you about it? Or would you rather have a hundred strangers retweeting it, liking it? You don't even know if these people are real people. Maybe they're bots, you know? I mean, you would ask that question to people. And again, this is that, that paradox. And they'd say, oh, I, I'd, I'd want that first experience. Like, that's so cool. You know, I mean, you saw, you read some of the... Um, conversations we had about Cuba yep. on, on Parlio. I think the Cuba conversations were a really good example of a very unusual instance of people from both sides of the ideological divide who rarely spoke to each other, you know, pro-embargo, anti-embargo, actually speaking to each other in a civilized way, which I thought was like, you don't see that a lot on the internet, you know? So I do think we were able to offer some kind of unique experience that people said that they wanted, but you're right. Yes, it's not the same thing as that sugar high of of having all these people pat you on the back, even if some of them are robots. Uh, I should note, and this was something that I did notice uh, in particular with the Cuba conversation, these were very accomplished thinkers mm -hmm. on the issue of Cuba and the Cuban embargo and all kinds of other things, right? They were all talking to each other, and the engagement was at an incredibly high level, mm -hmm. right? I've never seen anything quite like that, except at a live conference mm -hmm. that might get these people together. Uh, here it existed online, and that's sort of why I guess I lament that Parlio uh, later was sold and kind of transmogrified into something different, mm -hmm. right? That's what I missed about the platform. Sure. I checked it all the time, and I didn't participate a lot, in part, I think, because of a lot of the reasons that you just yeah, laid out, right? I guess I wish I had. I didn't know it was. I didn't know it was going to change soon. I didn't know that I could have contributed towards keeping it the way it was. But I, I do wish that it were still around. I wish that something like that still existed because I still went to it and got a lot out of it, even if I wasn't one of the most active participants. I guess I wonder if part of the issue there too is one of just the business model mm -hmm. that you need the people who are checking the site to also be participating in sure. it in order for it to survive rather than it just being able to survive because you had this conversation between a few really learned and smart people mm -hmm. and everybody else just kind of checked it out. Uh, we're kind of voyeuristic about it, you know? Sure, sure. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's really hard. And I think, you know, platforms are all struggling with this. And, you know, Parlio, we could have we could have stayed independent. We could have kept doing our own thing. But it's, you know, there are questions, right? There are questions about can you really achieve achieve the kind of growth that people expect, you know, with this, with the model that we had. And it's, 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 yeah, it's a real challenge. And it's a challenge, not just on the internet. I think it's a challenge, you know, with, with, with all kinds of media. There was a slew of companies. Uh, these companies were essentially ahead of their time in like the late nineties and mm -hmm. the two thousands, right? Cosmo or whatever that ended up going out of business. 
And it turned out that the problem wasn't their business model, but rather they were ahead of their time. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the possibility of something like Parlio uh, emerging in the future? And it'll just turn out that you guys were early, uh, not wrong about whether or not this could actually be something that, that both could captivate a big enough audience, but also survive uh, as a business. Yeah, I mean, I think we definitely were not recognized in our own time. <laughs> I'm sort of kidding. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, somebody said to us, they said, you know, if you guys are willing to stick with this for, you know, years, then I'm sure you will, you know, you will have your day. And that might be true. I mean, like I said, Parlio did not have to merge with Quora. We were not forced to do it. But, you know, it's, yeah, just a question. And I think given the current environment where people are so fixated on numbers and retweets and virality, it's, you know, it's hard. But I do think that I hear enough people talking about this where people are craving smaller, more intimate online experiences. You know, I hear that all the time. And you see it a little bit. I mean, you see it even, for example, in China, you know, where people use WeChat. WeChat is about smaller groups. And I think China tends to be, in a lot of ways, the future of the internet, right? And that whole model, you know, is not about talking to tens of thousands of people. It's talking to your group of of friends. And so I wouldn't be surprised, especially now, you know, when people are just getting so exhausted by the chaos of these platforms, if we start to see an alternative an alternative model rise up. One final question. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about your own uh, social media strategy? Mm-hmm. Um, Shannon, the co-host, and I were talking earlier about how we have actually scaled back our own use of social media. And even though we still get a lot out of Twitter and Facebook uh, and Instagram and some of the others, we are now essentially compartmentalizing our time on social media. Mm-hmm. And in my case, at least, Twitter is now something that I use for work primarily. And when I'm on Twitter, I'm on Twitter and I'm not doing anything else. Uh, And then when I'm off Twitter, I don't try I don't check it in the middle of writing something. I just stay off it completely. This is something relatively new that I'm still struggling Mm -hmm. with. But I'm hearing a lot of people, at least within my own social circle, who are trying something similar. I'm kind of curious to know if you've adapted any of those ideas. Yeah, it's really tough because I totally relate to that. I mean, I do find that for a few hours a day, I have to get off of Twitter because of the M&M thing. (laughs) You know, there's only so many M&Ms that one person can eat (laughs) in one day. And so, yeah, I definitely feel like I have to disconnect for a few hours at a time. But it's hard because every day, you know, especially if you're engaged in journalism, there are so many micro dramas every single day that you just find yourself getting sucked in. And, and, and it's hard, you know, you disconnect for one day, you've missed 10 news cycles, you know, especially right now. So it is a bit of a challenge. You know, I, I, I think I do try to I do try to unplug for a little bit, but you end up getting sucked back in just to kind of stay relevant in the conversation. Emily Parker, author of the book, Now I Know Who My Comrades Are, and also the writer of a new article, Why We Can't Fix Twitter on Politico. Emily, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. And we are back in the studio now. I'm joined by Shannon Bond, co-host, and we are just going to do a kind of rapid fire uh, take on each of the five social media platforms that we use and what those platforms have going on as companies and how they've been changing lately to adapt to users' preferences and complaints and all kinds of other things. Uh, Shannon, Facebook has 1.79 billion monthly active users that's like one out of every four people on earth yeah i mean it's a scale we just have to put it it, that's a scale that like compared to every other social network it's just it's in its own category in a way but uh yeah they're huge everyone's on there um everyone you know is on there 
which is great for them, but also, uh, you know, is at this point in their li- in their life as a company, everyone's on there. So what does that mean for future growth? They had seen really strong growth. The growth in the U.S. has definitely matured. Um, last year, it was 5% growth, user growth, versus about 17% elsewhere around the world. So Facebook's really looking right now to get the rest of the world on there. So there, you see efforts in emerging markets. Um, and they're also looking at the next generation of Internet users that's, that's coming along, essentially you know, young people who are getting their first iPhones, getting their first tablets. That is where they're actually, despite their dominance in the space, they're seeing some threat. They're seeing some threat specifically from Snapchat because that is sort of the preferred social network of the young, which we will talk about in just a moment. And to kind of combat that, you've seen Facebook in the past year, like incorporate some features of Snapchat into their products and also sort of change up their line of products. So there's Facebook as an app. There's Instagram, the photo sharing app that they own. They've also split out their Messenger app and then are like working to build like things that kind of work on top of Messenger. So the idea is you can do everything you want in your life within a Facebook app without ever having to leave. Let me ask you a more philosophical question about Facebook. At this point, because everybody we know is on Facebook, as you just said, do you think there's anything to the idea that if you have 500 or 1,000 or 1,500 friends on Facebook, it's like not having any friends? I mean, (laughs) yeah, there's definitely like a maximum amount of, I think, even just like emotional energy you can have like thinking about these people let alone like interacting with them and following their lives so at that point i can't even imagine like having trying to follow along with that many people and the thing the reality is like i think what everybody knows is in their facebook feed you're not seeing no matter how many friends you are you're not seeing the content probably from the vast majority of them you know one of the things they've also been really working on is trying to figure out what you are most likely to engage with what you're most likely to like or comment on and show you more and more and more of that and we saw this play out a bit during the election uh, where people were essentially being fed information that probably agreed with what they already thought about. And yeah, but that's the big controversy yeah. with Facebook now, too, is the well, fake right. news issue proliferating on that platform. Right. So there's a whole kind of separate thing there where it's easy to talk about Facebook sometimes just as like, oh, it's Facebook, it's where your friends are, or Facebook, it's you know what publishers are trying to essentially replace their business models with. And it's both, and those things are sometimes in opposition and, and definitely this this whole issue about fake news and propaganda and just straight out untruth being spread um, via social media and via your allegedly trusted friends has highlighted a lot of the problems and a lot of the, the huge tensions, I think, that underlie the relationship between Facebook and news publishers. Yeah, I, I would add, uh, I guess, two final points on Facebook. Strictly from the standpoint of how the company is run, you got to be impressed that they made the transition to mobile so oh, deftly, yeah. you yeah. know. Uh, And then secondly, I think for a lot of people, uh, especially more conscientious users of Facebook, I still think the company suffers a bit from its legacy of not caring at all about your privacy. Right. And and I wonder (laughs) to what extent uh, they'll be paying attention to that into the future. Okay, so much for Facebook. Uh, Let's talk about Snapchat or I guess Snap, as the company is now called Snap Inc. I, I will start by saying I don't like the name change because Snapchat, to me, sounded uh, like a perfect melding of the two things that uh, this platform does. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the snap represents the picture part, but the chat is the part that I think uh, is what a lot of people totally missed on why Snapchat has become so appeal. This is the equivalent of talking, as Snapchat's founder, Evan Spiegel, has uh, described it. Essentially, the question about Snapchat was always, um, well... Why would anybody want to send uh, pictures that are just going to disappear um, all of a sudden? But actually, it turns out that people uh, seem to like the, I guess, 
lack of stress, the lack of strain that yep. comes with just being able to take like a subpar picture. Whereas on other platforms, you always want to get the best picture because it might live on for, if not in perpetuity, then at least for a few days. Yeah. I mean, if you think about sort of Facebook is where you go and you sort of you present your life and you post things, but it's essentially lasts forever, right? You can go back and see what you posted much to your horror from six years ago or whatever. Um, and Instagram, you know, one of the knocks on Instagram is how it's so, so intensely curated. So the idea, you know, the life that I'm presenting on Instagram is like just absolutely beautiful all the time. And I have great design taste and my friends are also beautiful. And when you look at how people are actually using Snapchat, they have a particularly young user base as well. And they really are using it. It's much more just like conversation, just like kind of the funny stuff you might text to a friend, like the, you know, the, the random picture of yourself or of somebody else or something you've seen. But you're not trying to sort of form an identity with it. You're just trying to have a conversation, I think, in a lot of cases. And I think that's confused a lot of people, but actually it is what has proven to be valuable in terms of the amount of time people are spending on it, the user growth that they've had. We have less visibility into that than we do into um, Facebook and Twitter, which are already public companies. But that's going to be one of the things that will be interesting to see as they file for their IPO. Yeah, in terms of, uh, in terms of users, um, how far behind Facebook is Snapchat? It's a little hard to compare. It's kind of like apples and oranges because Snapchat uh, publishes a daily active user number, which is 150 million. Without getting into the weeds, this is a bit of a contentious issue in social media. Are you counting monthly actives or daily actives? The point is it makes it a little hard to compare th- these companies. Um, it's definitely it's smaller than Facebook. It's younger than Facebook. We don't know what the growth tra- how much better the growth trajectory is given that they're smaller. I would also add that the other thing to sort of talk about that's of note between um, Snapchat and Facebook is the role of advertising. Um, so essentially at this point in digital the digital advertising market, it's, when you're talking about digital advertising, you're pretty much talking about Google and Facebook. Um, that's where marketers are spending their money. That's where they're confident they can reach people. Um, but they're all really interested in Snapchat. It's a small, small, small slice at the moment of marketers' budgets, um, but it's a place they're really interested to get. Part of the, some of the reasons we were talking about before. It's it's, it's seen, young. It's cool. It's young. It's cool. It's hip. It's seen as a place where people are communicating directly to their friends. And there's to use a horrible ad buzzword. There's an authenticity to that. If you are you know, talking to a friend and you're using a branded lens, like a filter over your photo that's you know, promoting um, Doritos or whatever or a new movie coming out. There's something intimate there that, that brands want to be a part of that conversation. Um, but Snapchat's also been really uh, cautious in a way. Like they, they are very restrictive in sort of the kinds of ads that they allow. They're starting to do some video ads in the product. But again, like they have these sort of – like formatting requirements that make it look so to make these video ads like not look like an ad they look more like the content um whereas facebook has been much i would argue kind of much more willing to just like you know they're not trying to ruin the user experience but they're trying to throw more and more ads in I mean, they just announced this week they're going to be having mid-roll ads essentially ads that appear in the middle of a video um, more similar to what youtube talking does about facebook yeah now. facebook okay. yeah sorry um and so you you sort of see a different a different approach in trying to figure out how to monetize uh, the eyeballs they have coming to them. Okay, uh, just to put some quick numbers on that, the largest demographic for Snapchat right now is 18 to 24. The second largest uh, is 25 to 34. So still young people, but yeah. I think attracting more and more people who are older than those Yeah, and it's brackets. no longer just sort of like a place for sexting, which I think right. is what people thought of it at first. Right, right. Um, but yeah, it's 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 definitely growing. Okay, uh, moving on, let's actually give Instagram its own slot and not just discuss it as a rival to Snapchat or as a part of the Facebook organization. Right. Uh, I say that also because 
largely we've been criticizing uh, these social media platforms. Worth noting just quickly that I think both of us also still get an awful lot out of them. Oh, yeah, um, definitely. But for Instagram, which becomes more and more popular and has gone from 500 million to 600 million monthly active users in the last six months, I can say that it really is the most uh, dependably enjoyable you know, social media platform of all the ones I use. I don't necessarily engage with it all the time or all day long the way I do with some of the others. But every time I go there, there is something there that gives me joy. Yeah, I feel the same way. I, I It's the one that I use most currently. Although I described it as uh, dependably joyful, it is also the case that I don't particularly need it for anything, right? Like right. So with Twitter and Facebook, sometimes something will happen on those platforms and you actually have to be somewhat aware of it or right. it's useful to be aware of it, especially if you're a journalist. But with uh, Instagram, it's really just about a pleasant addition to your life. It's more like entertainment in that way, I guess. So do you see much advertising in your Instagram feed? Because that's a, a, definitely an area, you know, th- as more people are on it, you know, they're under pressure to monetize it. They are introducing more ads. But, you know, it's definitely a sort of a, a circumstance where the company wants to be pretty careful about the kind of ads that are showing up, the kind of partners they have advertising, and the way the ads look because they want it to feel like you don't you don't feel interrupted as you're coming along down your feed and suddenly, oh, there's an ad. Like they want it to make sure those ads really look like they're part of the rest of the platform. Yeah, I got to say – it doesn't feel very intrusive. Yeah. Uh, there are ads on Instagram. I do notice them. And sometimes the ads themselves are actually kind of interesting mm-hmm. or in keeping with the flow of the rest of my feed. But they don't feel like they get in the way of my enjoying it. As a company, uh, it seems like Instagram is paying attention to Snapchat. Uh, it Definitely. did just introduce uh, a way of streaming very short videos on the site um, yeah, and also I think video. some live videos yeah, they're too. doing live video and they have something called stories which is essentially a snapchat clone where you can sort of post little snippets that and they only stay up for about 24 hours um, and so that's it's a, a bit more ephemeral and I definitely notice at least among the people that I follow a bit of a stylistic difference between the type of pictures that they would post on their regular Instagram profile and then what they might put in their stories, which are going to disappear. It is. It does feel more like Snapchat that way. It's a little less composed often or just kind of just a snippet of life as opposed to really thinking about this picture is going to live on my profile for months and months. Yeah. I wish I had something more controversial to say about Instagram other than I like it. It's not a hugely important part of my mm-hmm. life, but it's nice. It's nice to have. I will say sort of from the business point of view, you know, I think for a lot of like lifestyle companies, apparel companies, travel, like you see there's like some really obvious ways for for advertisers, for certain types of advertisers to like get in there and use it in a sort of sophisticated way as opposed to just sort of you know jamming in whatever digital ads they can. And and I think that's, you know, that that's something worth mentioning because um though some of those industries also are industries that you know, tend to spend a lot of money on advertising and so that bodes well for their business model. Uh, let's move on to Twitter, uh, which oh, we started Twitter. talking about earlier. Um, here's where I want to start, though, because Twitter had quite a few challenges in the past year. It has had tremendous turnover in its leadership. It has never been considered a particularly well-run company. Right. It has the problem of Twitter trolls, which are just essentially people oh, who harass bullies. bullies, people who harass in really, really obscene, 
vicious ways, others that they disagree with, oftentimes with no good reason. In other mm. words, they go after women just because they're women. They go after people of color just because they're people of color. Right, and there tends to be um, a herd mentality about that. So there's these pile-ons that get very unpleasant. Yeah, it gets really bad. And there was a, a very big Trump effect on Twitter yep. from the last year's election. And it has continued to this day because Trump is now essentially using Twitter as a way to announce, if not policy ideas, although he might very well do that, statements of belief. I mean, it's right? his chief communication mechanism, I think it's fair to say at this point. Yes, it is. And uh, there's this one stat that was cited by the New York Times that on election night, there were 40 million election-related posts on Twitter by 10 p.m. Uh, that's really astounding, uh, and I don't know what to make of all this. On the one hand, Twitter's got this problem of trolls, and also it had a problem of slowing growth in its monthly yeah, active they, user base, they right? they reduced their growth targets. Yeah. Like, and on the other hand, it is still the communications platform of choice for the next president, um, for a lot of politicians, uh, for policymakers, and for, I guess, celebrities and important people of other stripes. And the media, which is, and the media. I would argue, a lot of the reason that gets the attention that it does. So listen, I mean, Twitter, think back to Twitter's IPO. They were supposed to be the next Facebook. They were supposed to be the next billion user network, right, that was just going to have astronomical growth. And that hasn't happened. They're they're basically starting to look much more like a niche product. There's a real question of whether they can get past sort of the, the where they are now, which is about 300 million monthly active users. It's a lot of people. There are There is a good-sized group of people who use it regularly. Um, there are a lot of people with Twitter accounts who don't really tweet. And even, I mean, in the past couple of weeks, its own chief marketing officer got up and said people don't really understand what Twitter is. You know, is it a social network? Do you have to tweet to use it? And they, the company has not done a very good job of explaining to people who are not celebrities or the media who kind of already have a built-in – first of all, like a, already have an understanding about public communication and also have an understanding about like how to use this and how to have a built-in following to a degree. You know, what the value is. They've tried to sort of redefine themselves as a, as a town square where you can follow a public conversation – like you said, there's this problem of trolls. It's really off-putting to people. The company has been, to be generous, in, essentially incapable, if not unwilling, to really tackle this problem. It's you know They've had a lot of criticism for that. They have made some moves to try to take that on. But I think I would say that most people who are the most concerned about this would say it's not enough. I, you know, I think the Trump effect, you can't understate like what an issue that is and how synonymous at this point Trump is with Twitter, and that isn't particularly good for the company. You know, they were in sale talks last year with Google and, and Salesforce. Those both have fizzled. There's a, a big question about, like, what the future of this company is. Okay. Last one, LinkedIn. Microsoft bought it last year for, I think, $26 billion. Yeah. I still use LinkedIn as a place to post my resume and a place to look at other people's resumes. Do I need to care about it other than that? You know, I think I, I suppose there could be you can make an argument that it could be if you are looking for a job that can be helpful. There's there can be networking effects there. They've made some moves into being a publisher in their own right, so people can can write things there, um, and some of that stuff does get circulated. But it, yeah, I <laughs> I have a really hard time thinking that it's a compelling place. It's not a place that I want to spend time. Like you can go and spend time on Facebook and spend time on Twitter. You might not feel great about it afterwards, but like. You know, you're, you kind of get caught up in that stream of content. That has never happened to me reading LinkedIn. I don't yeah, know about I, you. I suspect that people who use the uh, premium content on LinkedIn probably 
do get something yeah. out of it. Otherwise, they wouldn't be paying all that extra yeah. money for yeah. it. Uh, I've just never seen a, a case presented to me as an individual user for why I would want to pay the extra money. Yeah, like and in why? terms of what what's available for free, it's fine. There's nothing particularly wrong with it. I just it's not something that I go back to very often. Yeah. And I should say that that for all of this coverage of social media um, and a lot of these issues, uh, I would really re- point our listeners to the work of our colleague Hannah Kuchler in San Francisco, um, who covers this beat relentlessly and uh, has some really great stuff on it. Okay, great. Did we miss anything, Shannon? I think we, we probably did give a little bit of short shrift maybe to some of the fake news stuff, thinking about Facebook and Twitter. A lot of what happened over the past few months, uh, people are still going to be arguing about it and still going to sort of hash it out. And the companies, or at least Facebook, you know, this week has just announced this effort they're doing. They're working with some newsrooms on what they're calling the Facebook Journalism Project to uh, try to do a bunch of different things, try to experiment with some business models around around news in general, uh, with promoting local and independent media organizations, with promoting organizations that are sort of that are working to verify sources and doing PSAs around news literacy for people essentially like helping people understand like what the source of the news they're reading um, and whether they should believe those things or not and that's probably good right I mean I think one of the big problems we saw in the election is that when you're on Facebook and to a degree when you're on Twitter it can be hard to differentiate where what you're reading is coming from. So a friend shares something from the New York Times that doesn't look really any different than a friend sharing something from what turns out to be a fake news site. It's a problem on the right and the left. I mean, I think there was a lot of attention paid to the alt right and the sort of the anti-Hillary news stuff. But there's pl- I have plenty of liberal friends on Facebook who are sharing false information. But that said. You know, those efforts, I think, are commendable, but I'm really – maybe I'm just in a pessimistic mood today, but I'm really pessimistic that they're going to ultimately make a huge difference because I think what we've seen and the way we people behave on these networks in the past few months, it's, it's really crystallized this this problem of partisanship, right, and this problem of, of not just seeking out the news – news sources or, or any sources that agree with us and pe- other people that agree with us and living in our bubbles. But there's also been some fairly compelling like social science research about how partisanship has really changed the way we experience our lives. So I was just reading this piece in The Upshot on The New York Times today um, that talks about uh, the work of a couple academics about how p- our political bias is now essentially creating a partisan prism for facts. They say that partisanship is operating more like racism or sexism, where essentially, you know, you if you accuse somebody of being, you know, a Republican or a Democrat, I mean, it's not just that you disagree with their policies, but that's an insult, like, as on a personal level. And that that is really changing our ability to engage with, with ideas that are different from ours. And it's we've incorporated it into, like, our core identities in a way that's maybe kind of troubling. And I'm not sure that any... PSAs about news literacy or, you know, fact checks or anything else are going to change that as long as we are essentially becoming more and more hardwired to say, well, I agree with that, so it must be, must be true. And I don't, I don't know whether these, these companies can actually do something about that, whether news organizations can do something about that. Like, I, I feel like I'm a little bit out of ideas. <laughs> I don't know. Aren't we all? This show ran a little bit long, so no long-form recommendations this time, but we'll have them again next week. I'm Cardiff Garcia at Cardiff Garcia on Twitter, and you can also reach Shannon Bond at Shannon Parai. That's at S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L. 
Give us a call at 917-551-5012. If you're an overseas caller, the country code is plus one because we're in the U.S. Or email us at alphachat at ft.com. You can also leave us a review on iTunes. And this actually is a great idea because it really does help other people find the show. And finally, for show notes, go to ft.com forward slash alphachat. We'll also put up a few links to the topics and articles that we discussed here today. Finally, the social media platform that we get might be the one I deserve, but in a bad way. On the other hand, Amy Keene, the producer and editor of this podcast, is just way better than I deserve. Thanks for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another edition of Alpha Chat. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.